Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Glad you've chosen to listen to our podcast, and once again, we're going to have the proclamation of the word from this last Sunday. It is, uh, in my opinion, the hardest chapter to preach on, and it's not as though Romans has been easy, uh, but this is the one that I was really hoping that God would speak to me and I would work out 500 years of Christian argumentation around the topic of predestination versus free will, and um, I did not solve it in a formulaic equation that you can call upon and win all the arguments. Um, My primary concern is just making sure that everybody understands it for what it is and is not saying. And of course, I'm a Methodist, so I try and do this from a Wesleyan, through a Wesleyan lens. And John Wesley wrote about this quite a bit. So I, I consulted him, but I can't pretend that this all fit perfectly together in my head. I think it's supposed to be hard. And I say that in the sermon, but I think this stuff was written down so that we could meditate upon it, not so that we would avoid it or um, um, try and stay away from it. So anyway, I'd encourage you to lean into it. I'd encourage you to just uh, be in prayer and thoughtful as you engage this stuff. And uh, God bless you as you do. So I think this is about the worthiest thing that we can do in life is to learn how we're walking with God. All right. Blessings to you. This is the hardest chapter we're going to do. There are 16 chapters in this book. We've already done eight chapters, and it hasn't been a cakewalk. It's required a lot of us, so let's be clear on a couple things. If something is in this book, the Holy Bible, is it necessary? Is it mandatory? If something is not in this book, is it necessary and mandatory? No, it's not. There are nice things outside of this book. I'm not going to tell you it's a sin to read anything other than the Bible. However, this is the necessary mandatory stuff. Now, what if Romans requires me to use my brain in a way I'm not used to? What then? Do I, do I get a pass? No. It's here because it's necessary. We live in a world of trite truisms. A lot of people who say they love Jesus, but they don't spend time in his word, and they say things that do not reflect what you find in here especially among the topics that we're going to be talking about today. Let's start with some, uh, let's, let's say some other things that, that we should be able to affirm. Is God in control of history? Yes. Has God foreordained how things shall transpire? Absolutely. Do you and I have free will? Yes, we do. We're going to be talking about how those two things are at odds today. That God is in control, he has foreordained and predestined things, and even so, you and I have control over our lives. We have some decisions that we can make. Those two things are at odds. Paul does not shy away from that. He leans into it, he tries to help us think through it, but what we're going to be talking about today is a mystery. The clear expectation is that you and I and all true believers meditate upon it and live our lives in response to it. We're talking about something that has divided Christians in the Western world, at least for 500 years. 
This is where John Calvin divided from Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, the original reformers they divided on. How sovereign is God? Are you and I just puppets living out this plan that he has already ordained and we really have no free will? Or as the process theologians say today, does God really have no power and it's up to you and me to legislate God's kingdom on earth? Those are the two extremes. You're not going to be surprised. I think they're both wrong. Now, the, the process theology, that's, that's fringe left-wing stuff that not many churches actually talk about. But we live in an era where the Reformed Church is actually very strong. That's, that's John Calvin's group, and they're the ones saying there's really no such thing as free will, generally. You will find some saying, of course there's free will. But figuring out how that actually works, I've never actually heard a, heard a good explanation. John MacArthur, uh, John Piper, uh, Vody Bauckham, I respect all these guys are amazing pastors, are amazing spiritual leaders, Timothy Keller. Even so, I do not understand how they think this works if there's no free will. So, we'll come back to it. Let's, let's remind ourselves what's going on in the Roman church. Church in Rome, Paul has not visited before. He knows that they're having dissension, disagreement within that body. There are Jews and Gentiles in this body. He's been trying to help them navigate. Okay, you Gentiles, you're the bad guys in this way and you're the good guys in this way. You Jews, you're the good guys in this way, you're the bad guys in this way. He spent more time beating up on the Jews because the Jews feel special. Why do they feel special? Because they're God's chosen people, right? You've read the Old Testament. You know that God, among all the nations, chose a special people, the Hebrews, adopted them in the wilderness, uh, made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai with Moses, and they are people of the covenant. And when they come into covenant... They are circumcised. The males are circumcised, and then they live and die in covenant, believing that they are God's special people and that God has not adopted Gentiles the same. But Gentiles have been told, because of what Jesus did, they've been adopted now too. And actually, the law that was given to the Jews, even though the law was good, it brought out the worst in them, and it brings out the worst in anyone who comes under that law. So now we're under the law of freedom, or the law of love, the law of Jesus. That's the New Testament that he made in his, the new covenant he made on the Last Supper. So that's what they're trying to navigate. Okay, what's most important? What's true for everybody? What's true for everybody is we're all born equally in sin, are we not? We're all born alienated from God, uh, slaves to sin. We don't have free will when we're born. We are slaves to sin. We cannot choose or be good. But then we all need to repent and Accept the faith that God gives us. So it's not, is it deeds that save us or is it faith that saves us? Faith. But faith without works is dead. This is not easy stuff, is it? You can't just say, I'm going to have faith and that saves me and that's all there is to it. No, there's works. You can't just say, I have free will and I get to make my own path. No, God is sovereign. You have, to, you have to balance these extremes with some place that's in the middle. And you and I have been given this Bible, so we find that middle place. We're not called to extremes. We're called to an extreme center place. That's what this chapter is going to help us do. I need to stop talking about the chapter and actually read the chapter. Chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Who's he talking about? The Jews. 
He is upset about the Jews. Why? The people of Israel, verse 4, theirs is the adoption, the sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Are those good things? Yes, they're all amazing supernatural blessings God poured out upon them. Verse 5, theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Who's that? Was Jesus a Jew? Yes. Who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's a good thing to be a Jew. God has blessed the Jews. But are the Jews following Jesus? Today are the Jews following Jesus? No, the vast majority do not. Likewise, in Paul's time, if you've read Acts of the Apostles, there were some Jews who followed, but the vast majority did not. What on earth is there to say about that? We live in an era where, um, well, the, it's been every human era. In every era, we've had people called experts. And experts supposedly know a lot more about given fields than average people, right? And so we, the expectation is we have some people who major in something, and then we all listen to that person or that group of people. So you have American Pediatrics, Pediatric Society. Those guys should know about children's health, right? When they put out a statement on children's health, they should know uh, we should follow because they're the experts, right? So the Jews are the experts on the Messiah. They've got the Old Testament. They've been told what to expect. They have everything from God that they could possibly have to know who the Messiah would be when he comes. And you have this populist movement now of Gentiles going, this is the Messiah. And you have the experts, the Jews, saying, no, he's not who we expected. We don't like that guy. That's, we see a lot of that in this era right now. We have, the, we have the experts, and then we have the populace saying, you can't tell us not to believe our lying eyes. You know? And that's what was going on with the Jews and the Gentiles right here. You have the Jews coming in saying, we know how it should be. We know what Jesus said. He was wrong. We need to do it this way. We know what the apostles are saying. They're wrong. We need to do it this way. And Paul is writing and saying, uh, no. You guys, more than anybody, should know, but you don't. What? Why? Why is this? This is very disturbing. These people who've been preparing for the Messiah to come, the Messiah comes and they go, nope, not him. That should disturb us, should it not? How can we make sense of this? What should have happened was Jesus would come and then they would say, he's clearly the Messiah. We're going to follow this guy. He's, we, he's everything we've been expecting. He fulfills Isaiah 53. He, it fulfills, he fulfills every book in the Bible, every prophecy made. He fulfills it. We're going to follow him. That's what should have happened. Sarah Beth and I, we, we follow some, uh, a community of people called preppers. Anybody know what preppers are? Preppers are people who don't believe that our current order can maintain. There's a breaking point. Whether we devalue the U.S. currency so much that it no longer means anything or that intercontinental trade breaks down and the truckers no longer deliver goods and all of a sudden there's no food in the aisles at the grocery store. There are a lot of different scenarios. They, they don't pretend to know what's going to happen. They just want to be prepared in the event that there is no food or no money or no water, no electricity. They want to be prepared. So that's where prepper comes from. Sarah Beth and I are not proper preppers, okay? We're some, like, middle ground where we'll, like, we won't die after a week, but we probably won't make it two months. There are some people that got three years of stuff put away, and they got a 1,000 guns. I am not armed to the teeth at the parsonage. Please don't rob me. Um, <laughs> But the thing is, so there was an event in Southern California several years ago where the power went out and things started looking like they were really going to devolve. And there was this journalist living with a prepper community, like a whole neighborhood full of people that were preppers. 
And I saw him on Joe Rogan, who leads this podcast. He does these three-hour-long interviews, and he said, man, I bet when things were really falling apart, your prepper friends were just going nuts, right? And he said, no. They were cool as cucumbers. They knew exactly what to do because they were prepared, right? That's the whole point of being a prepper is to know what to do when things give out. The whole point of being a Jew at this point is to know the Messiah when you see him. And yet they didn't know him. He was a stumbling stone over which they tripped. We're going to come back to that. I hope that metaphor is helpful for you. I enjoyed laying it out. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. You know, a lot of people would look at that and go, the Old Testament obviously failed to prepare them. Something's wrong with God's word. No, it didn't fail. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Oh, this is sounding familiar. You remember chapter 2 and 3 whenever he was saying, just because you're circumcised actually doesn't mean you're a Jew. There are people that are circumcised, but they're not obedient to God, and their circumcision has become uncircumcision. You remember this? He said the truly circumcised ones, whether or not you've been physically circumcised, you can have a circumcision of the heart that's marked by obedience to God in his law. So how do you know if you are of the true Israel, truly a child of Abraham? It's if you're a child of the promise of faith, if you are obeying the word of God. That's it. He's saying there are a lot of people who think they're Jews, descendants of Abraham, who actually are not. He's saying they might be genetically descendants, but they're not spiritually descendants of Abraham. And he uses the Old Testament to show that this is what matters. How does he do that? Verse 7, nor because uh, they are descendants, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. It's quoting from Genesis here. You remember that Abraham had a son before Isaac? What was his name? Ishmael, with Hagar, the servant, uh, concubine, bondwoman. He had a child with her, a son. Could have inherited all his blessings, could have inherited all his stuff. No, God says, only Isaac. Isn't that interesting? Because uh, Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham, is he not? The Jews are wanting to take comfort in the fact that they're descendants of Abraham. He's saying, no, the very first descendant of Abraham didn't get the blessing. If you want the blessing, you might not should be taking comfort in the fact that you are a genetic descendant. Verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. What is this promise? We'll, we'll get to it in a second. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. You remember that? Some angels showed up and Abraham waylaid them. They were on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and they look and they assess the situation. They say, oh, you're your wife, who's 30 years, 40 years, 50 years past menopause, when we come back through, she's going to be pregnant. And remember, she laughs at them, and they say, why are you laughing at us? And she says, I wasn't laughing at you. But they say, you were laughing at us. You remember that? I love the, I love the Bible. But anyway, it's talking about that promise right there, the promise that God made a new life where there was a dead womb. That's children of the promise. And that's you and me. We were born dead. It's like we were born, stillborn, and yet God brought us to life. We were born zombies, and God made us real people. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children. You remember Isaac married Rebekah, and she was uh, barren. She couldn't have children, and yet the Lord blessed her, not with one child, but with two at the same time, right? Jacob and Esau, and in the womb they fought. They didn't like each other, and then they fought on the way out, and then they fought while they were alive. Uh, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet... Before the twins were born or had anything good or bad, had done anything good or bad. So this is not works-based. 
God's reward is not works-based. They didn't earn his reward. In order that God's purpose and election might stand, election means uh, choosing the ones whom he will love and receive salvation, not by works, but by him who calls. So it's not by anything they did. God called them to righteousness. She was told the older will serve the younger. Remember, Esau came out first. He was hairy and big and red and strong. His father loved him more, but God chose Isaac instead. The older will serve the younger. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A lot of people read this and go, how is that fair? They hadn't even done anything, and God already picked his favorites. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? What does unjust mean? It means you don't give people what they deserve, right? Our notion of justice is you reward people who do good, you punish people who do bad. Here he's saying, nope, God just pours out his mercy as he chooses not based on anything you and I do. That is scandalous and offensive. We want to believe that we can earn our salvation. Can you and I earn our salvation? There is absolutely nothing you can do to put God in your debt. There is nothing you can do where you can show up and show God your card and say, ah, let me in. I paid my purchase. Jesus paid the purchase. He's the one who did the work. You and I can't do it. We remember this? Time and time again, we go out into the world that is obsessed with justice. We serve a God who did something scandalous. His son paid the price that you and I should have paid, couldn't have paid. Lost my place. Verse 14, thank you. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy. Compassion, that's from Exodus, obviously. You see, anytime you see those little letters, they tell you where it comes from in the Bible. Verse 16, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, what, what, what we're up against here is how humans, you give them an inch and they take a mile. How many of us deserve heaven when we're born? How many of us deserve eternal life? Zero. But God extends the offer of eternal life to everybody. Now, some people have a harder time than others. And instead of saying, man, it's amazing that God pours out his mercy on some, we're going, how come not everybody gets it? How come some people just don't get it? How come this person over here has it and he's, he's faithful and this other person over here isn't? Why is God not fair? The thing is, if God were fair, none of us would make it. The scandalous thing is God pours out his mercy on everyone who doesn't deserve it. He is scandalously good and gracious. And then we look at him and go, how come you're not more gracious? It's like if I gave my daughter a nutritious meal, she said, how come there's not ice cream on this plate? She's not like that. You would never do that, would you? You say, thank you, daddy, for dinner. Actually, it's usually mama. We say, thank you. And we might not have on our plate, you know, Clementine, she saw that place. Not want that. She'll sit down and she'll, but when you understand what your mother went through in the kitchen to keep you alive, you say, thank you, mama. And don't you, don't you, Susanna, you thank your mama at every meal. That's what Christians are supposed to be. But the world wants to, how come your God let my child suffer? How come your God didn't save me out of this trial that I had? Where was your God when the Sudan fell apart. They leveled this at us as though it's supposed to undo the fact that our God is scandalously good and merciful. 
They look at what he doesn't, the, the way he doesn't dance to their drum. They don't see all the things that he is. This world would crumble in no time flat if God took his hand away at any given point. He is keeping you and me alive. I mean, you think about all these sinners that hate him and disrespect him. He's keeping them alive. He's shining his sun down on them. He's giving them air. They're breathing his air. And he lets them do that all their life, and they continue to curse his name. God help us. Sometimes that's Christians. Verse 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? We're talking a lot of Old Testament here today. Pharaoh was the head of the Egyptians, and he enslaved the Hebrews, right? And eventually Moses was sent to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not let them go. And so these curses started coming down through, through the Lord, through Moses from the Lord. Ten different plagues. And after some of them, Pharaoh actually changed his mind. He said, okay, go, go, go. But God hardened his heart so that he could pour out his wrath on the Egyptians and show his wonderful power and divine wrath. And that is something that scandalizes some people. Pharaoh would have repented. Pharaoh would have relented. But God made him be the bad guy. That is the clear inference when you read Exodus. There's not much of a way around it. What's Paul going to say about this? Verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So reformed Christians look at this and they say, before you're born, God has already decided if you're going to heaven or hell, if you're good or bad guys, you're just living out the plan that he has already made for you. There's nothing you can do to change course. If you're damned, you're damned. If you're blessed, you're blessed. Is that what this shows? I'm not so sure. Have there been individuals in history where God particularly cursed or blessed? Absolutely, yes. The Bible says that. To say that's how he does it with all of us, I think is a little egocentric, to be honest with you. I think God is in control of the broad swath of history, but I think he's also given us agency. In fact, when you read Michael Heiser, I recommend him all the time. He says, when God made us in his image, the one thing that we have in common with him is free will. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't make us. He doesn't, we're not his puppets. We are free beings as God is a free being, and we can choose good and we can choose bad. Now, the thing is, that can easily turn into Pelagianism. That's a heresy. The belief that you and I are born neither good nor bad, and we can choose either. That's not what the Bible preaches. The Bible preaches that you and I are born slaves, inclined towards evil or wicked. But then God sends us what's called preventing grace. That's not a biblical term. We've just got grace. But the Wesleyans talk about preventing grace. That's where God wakes you up, makes you able to repent. He doesn't make you repent. He just wakes you up at one point or another to realize that you're a sinner. You were born dead in your sins. You need to repent. But whether you repent, whether you do good works, whether you grow in holiness and work with the Holy Spirit, that's up to you. He's not going to make you be holy. He extends the invitation. Most people refuse it. Most people condemn themselves. God doesn't necessarily send anyone to hell. Depends on who you talk to, what scriptures you read. He lets you go there if you want. And if you don't want God right now, are we really to believe you want him when you're dead? Salvation begins here and now. Starts with that preventing grace of turning from our sin, goes to justifying grace, letting Christ's blood apply to our hearts, leads to sanctifying grace with the Holy Spirit, cooperating, leading us into holiness, ends in perfecting grace, where we have the fullness of Christ in us. That's a scriptural witness right there. 
Now, John Wesley believes that even Pharaoh could have repented. And he readily admits, a lot of us, we're not born all equal. We're not all born equally rich. You know, there's a lot of injustice in the world. Some people are, you know, some people are born in America, some people aren't. And as much as I want to critique about America, to be born here instead of Bangladesh, why are some people here, some in Bangladesh? Why are some people born in two-parent households and some people are orphans? Why are some people born with good health and some people with chronic illness? We can look at all that and go, God is unjust. Is that a scriptural perspective? How is God towards those who suffer and the brokenhearted? God is close to the brokenhearted, is he not? I just quoted scripture. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. That's Hebrews. Proverbs, spare the rod, spoil the child. I'm not telling you to hit your kid, but I'm saying God lets you and me get hurt. My friends, brothers, James chapter 1, verse 1, when, when trials come your way, consider it nothing but joy because trials will build character and character will build hope and let hope come to its full fullness so that you will be perfect in every way. If you are not tried, if you are not tested, well, you're going to be like me. You're going to be soft. I'm not as I ought to be. I often wonder. I've sat on my knees down here many days going, God, do you not love me? Because I don't suffer. I don't know what suffering's like. My suffering is, oh, my kids are being mean to me today. Oh, I'm stressed out. I'm afraid I might get fired. I don't have troubles. Not like other people. But other people who have troubles, they might look at me and go, you jerk. You think you want to suffer like me? This is miserable. I'm, I'm not saying that. I don't want to suffer. Jesus didn't want to be up on the cross, did he? But when the time came, he gladly bore it. That's the place you went. We're not masochists. We don't want to get hurt. But when pain comes our way, we trust in the Lord, don't we? We know that he's going to work a good thing in us, don't we? And we realize that when the Lord has chosen not to put me, I mean, he's, I'm very privileged. And to the world, I would look like, oh, God loves that guy. That's prosperity gospel. No, when we look at those who know and love the Lord and their suffering, we're going, God loves them. God is working them towards perfection. I'm not so sure about me. Y'all don't hurt me. God's going to do it. Let's pray God does it. Because wouldn't it be scandalous on the last day if I'm up here saying, suffering is God's blessing, suffering is gonna, God's discipline, be, and then when the time for suffering comes for me, I run. I apostatize. Wouldn't that be such a scandal? Y'all pray for me. I can't be soft like that. You can't be soft like that either. I'm preaching too much. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? He made Pharaoh bad. He made me bad. How can he judge me if he made me bad? This verse 20 is not a satisfactory answer. Or it is, but my human icky heart doesn't like it. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? How many people are like this? God, why did you make me like this? I don't like my life. Why did you give me this life? He says, that's the height of human idiocy. That's not, I mean, when a potter makes a pot, can the pot, well, he says it. Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, 
prepared for destruction. So this is, you know, the people that hate him, that hurt him, he's caring for them every day. Yes, they will be condemned, but it's not like he's condemning them right now. He is giving them every chance to repent. They're just not doing it. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he's saying all of us are in the same boat. We're all born in sin. God has shed out his preventing grace on all of us. We're all invited into the life of faith and holiness. Verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. He's talking about Gentiles. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that the, the, Jew, the Gentiles would be welcomed into adoption with the Jews. Verse 26, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So we heard Hosea, now we hear Isaiah. Though the number of the Israelites be like sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So this is returning back to that question of, aren't the Jews God's chosen people? Doesn't he love them more than the Gentiles? And Paul is saying, actually, no. You're only children of Abraham, children of the promise, when you live obedient, faithful lives. It's been prophesied in the Old Testament. Not all the Jews are going to make it, only a remnant. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. We'll see, that's from Isaiah. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, he would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So that's saying God is sustaining us despite our unworthiness. God has put his children on earth, his righteous ones. That's hopefully us, right? Otherwise, the world would have gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, we don't say it would be like Sodom or Gomorrah. We just say it would be hell in a handbasket. Same thing. What then shall we say? Verse 30. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal? That's a question, and the answer is actually yes. That many of the Jews who were attending, uh, attending upon the law were not saved. And many of the Gentiles who weren't even trying to be righteous, when they heard the good news, sought Christ, and yes, they're saved. That's exactly what happened. Verse 32, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith. He's talking about the Jews. They, they pursued the law, which is not faith. They pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, this is from Isaiah, by the way. See, I lay in Zion a stone. Where was Zion? Jerusalem, the holy city of God. I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble. This is a metaphor. Anybody know what the metaphor is? Who is this stone? Jesus sent Jesus in the middle of the holy people Israel and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's where this chapter ends. And that's good news because you and I are the ones who have believed in Christ Jesus. We are in covenant with Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that covenant makes demands on us. Certain beliefs leading to a certain way of life. And you and I, we have, to, we have to dive into that. And we have to navigate that. And we have to be victorious in that. So I'm going to offer a couple things at the, the tail here. I've already explained preventing grace. And I think that's, a, that's an important concept because the Lord pours out his preventing grace on all flesh. We're all born enslaved to sin. God w gives all of us the ability to wake up 
and then we choose whether or not to do that. Now, Reformed Christians will disagree with me. Some will even condemn me for that. But that's, that's thoroughly within the Wesleyan tradition that we see throughout the scriptures. Have you ever noticed that people who believe that God has a plan still look both ways before they cross the street? Like, if, if you look at the implications of that, you wouldn't look both ways when you cross the street. You would just go, if it's God's plan, I'm going to die. Let's go, you know. Everybody believes in free will to some degree. Christians also believe God is in control of history. How can we make these two things fit? Here's going to be my last thought. Science is not always necessarily the enemy of faith. It can actually be very helpful in dis- helping us to discern the nature of God. One of the ways in which it does that, physics started studying the nature of light over a century ago. And light, we all know what light is. I mean, that's how we see, right? But when you look at the substance of what light is, how does it work? What is the substance of it? And physicists, more than a few decades, a couple decades ago, discerned it's a wave. You know, waves on the the radio uh, electromagnetic spectrum, there's all kinds of waves. They go through the universe in a wave, and some of them are long waves, some of them are really short waves. Light is a wave. So that makes sense. But then other physicists realized it's a particle. A particle's not a wave. A particle's a packet. A packet is not a line. How? So is light not real? You and I are just imagining we're seeing things? No, light is obviously real. But it's both a particle and a wave. And that's what science says. And when you talk to scientists, they go, yep, shrug. Because that's as far as you're going to get with it. And that's about as far as you're going to get with free will versus God's sovereignty. Has God foreordained everything? Is he in charge of history? Is there anything that can throw off God's plan? He's in charge. He's in control. He is sovereign. He's in control of everything. Do you and I have free will? Yes. Otherwise, why was the Bible even written down? If there's nothing for you and me to change in our lives and respond to, what are we doing here? There's obviously free will. God is obviously sovereign. Your and my job is to lead lives that reflect that. God is in control. I am not threatened. I do not fear anyone. I have faith. I trust in him. I renounce all else. I trust in him. But also, I realize every day I've got to make decisions that reflect that. That's the Christian walk. That's the Christian life. We don't get to say God's in control, so I don't have any burden of faithfulness. And we don't get to say, I have to do everything right, otherwise God's not going to be able to do it. Both of those extremes are stupid and heretical. God is in control. You and I have to exercise our our free will in ways that glorify him. I don't want you to put this down when you get home. I want you to read it again when you get home. I want you to read it again tomorrow. I want you to be thinking about these things so that when people say trite things, you don't have to argue with them, but you're not going, oh, you know, God has a plan for everything. I guess it was his will that someone's three-year-old should die. Oh, you know, well, we got to save this world. Otherwise, you know, God isn't going to do anything. There are all kinds of things that get said. You know, you remember in the you remember when thoughts and prayers started getting insulted? What good are your thoughts and prayers doing, Christians? A lot of good your prayers do. That's the sort of thing that gets said when people don't understand this. You and I have been put on earth as God's ambassadors, and we don't get to phone it in. We are his people. We are the loving hands and working feet of Jesus. So, If it's in here, is it necessary? Let's go home after we sing.
Um, I've decided to follow Jesus. Is that what we're singing? Okay, and we got the fourth verse in there this time? Okay. If you didn't actually decide last week and you were just singing the words, now's your chance to actually decide. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> 